The scripture reading this evening comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 3 to 6 6, 6 to 13. Yep, got the numbers mixed up. So when the women saw that the tree was good, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. All right. Well, uh, welcome. Glad that you all could be here together in the name of our Lord. It's good to be here. It's good to be in God's presence. And uh, I don't know about you guys. I'll just be honest with you. I've had quite a week. And so uh, I'm just so encouraged to be able to come together to sing, to worship God together, and uh, to be just gathered as the body of Christ. So I'm glad that you decided to be here with us today as well. Also, those joining online, we're glad that you could kind of be here with us, or at least to share as we go into God's Word together. Today, that text might seem a little familiar. It's a a portion of what we looked at last week, Uh, and today we're continuing to make our way kind of slowly through, uh, ideally we're aiming to go kind of through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and uh, at first, and then we'll maybe take a break over the summer, uh, and we're, it's at this rate, it's like, well, how long is that's going to take a, quite a while to get there? Uh, but I want to say, don't worry, I promise, as we are moving forward in the book of Genesis, some sections are going to go a little faster than we're kind of so far in the last, first couple chapters here. Uh, we won't spend maybe as much time on the genealogies, for instance, won't spend too many weeks going through those names, uh, although we will look at them. Um, But right now, we find ourselves looking in on this kind of infamous and notorious moment in human history, and it's really important for us to take some time to consider it, because I would say it's maybe even could be considered one of the most important chapters in the whole of the Bible, at least when we are trying to understand the nature of the Bible and the story and the narrative of Scripture altogether. And I'll say it again, as I've said quite often, uh, the book of Genesis is incredibly important for us to at the very least, have a basic understanding of in regard to how we read and understand the New Testament. This is especially true with Genesis chapter 3, which is why we are spending a little extra time here, but I hope that it's something that becomes or proves fruitful uh, in how God speaks into your life through it. Now, last week we examined how Eve is deceived by the serpent, and we kind of really focused in on the serpent, uh, which we clarified is the devil. Uh, The rest of Scripture points that out. We don't see it in the text itself, but we can use the Bible to help us to understand Scripture. 
And so we see this clear description. The devil is using one of God's good creations, right? And we showed that the devil, that Eve had no kind of, uh, she wasn't fearful, she wasn't worried about this serpent talking to her. And so the devil is being tactful in his approach in order to get close enough to Eve to manipulate her through deception, through a twisting of God's word to, in order to deceive her into believing that the fruit is actually a good thing. And that it is God, ultimately, that is her enemy. It is God and his commands that are standing in the way of something good, of something better. And the devil is still at work today. He's leading many astray. He's keeping the lost in the dark as best he can. And even for those of us who belong to Jesus Christ... He is seeking to keep us battling with the same sins, to keep on using the same tactics, to keep us struggling with the same things over and over again so that we would be useless for the work of the kingdom, that we would be so focused on our sins and battling these sins and being kind of sucked into them that we would have no use for God when he, in what he wants to do through us, which is, I used this verse last week, Ephesians 4, 27, give no opportunity to the devil. Some translations say give no foothold. It's a really popular one people like to use. I like this. Give no opportunity, not one opportunity, nothing in your life. And we should understand his strategies and learn to avoid his tactics in our life. And I say in our life because how the devil is going to approach you is going to be different than how he approaches me. And we'll see this a little bit today as we kind of uh, revisit what we looked at last week and look a little bit further and how he has a tactic to deceive Eve and a tactic to use Eve to bring Adam along with. So there's a different tactic there. We need to know how he's working in our life to try and deceive us unless, lest we be easily ensnared due to our ignorance, due to our ignorance of what he's doing, what he's trying to doing, and our ignorance of the word of God. Choosing to believe the lie always leads to consequences of rejecting God's truth. And we explored these tactics, which again haven't changed since Eve to now, the tactics that the devil is using. He uses the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life to blind us, to distract us, and to plant seeds of doubt about who God really is, that God is good. God is a good God. He's a good father. He loves us. He is a perfect father, and he has love for us as his children. He always wants what is for our best, and it is good for us to trust in his word, to trust in what his promises say, and to trust in his commands. It is the devil who tries to twist this so that we see God as our enemy, that he's trying to keep something from us, that he's trying to hold us back in some way rather than our protector that he creates this perimeter around us for our protection. So let's continue now where we left off last week. Eve has been deceived. The devil has laid out this strategy. She's walked into the trap and not knowing the words uh, that God had spoken, clearly she chooses to give in to temptation. I talked about that last week, how it is Adam who is given the command by God, right? And he's given the responsibility there to give that information to Eve. Maybe he failed there. Maybe she misunderstood. We don't know. But at some point, there was a miscommunication, and she didn't know the word of God clearly. And so then it says she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So let's consider for a moment the nature of Eve's sin and Adam's sin respectively. 
See, now we can clearly see that both have sinned. Both are in disobedience to God. Both have partaken in the fruit that they were commanded not to. But the nature of their sin is uniquely different to each of them. And we can look at that when we look at 1 Timothy 2, 14. 1 Timothy 2, 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So this is the nature of her sin, is being deceived. And I want to be brief on this because this is really what we focused on last week. So if you weren't here, uh, you can listen to that where we unpack it a little bit more. But I do just for uh, to kind of have a comparison here before we get to Adam. Eve was deceived. She began to doubt. She began to even change the words of God. And we talked about that also last week. She kind of, she added a few things. She kind of manipulated a little bit of what he said. It was close, but it wasn't exact. She said, oh, if we even touch, God said, if we touch the fruit or touch the tree, we'll die. But that's not what God had said. She has kind of twisted it a little bit. And the devil just takes that and says, ah, now I can really twist it all the way to where you see, begin to see God as your enemy. So we want to be careful to know the word of God, not just in part, not just the idea of it, but to know the word of God in its context and what it is meant to say. So she began to doubt and she began to change the words of God and she is deceived and she chooses then in the end to believe the lie rather than the truth. And I would say we're all very capable of falling into this sin. We're all very capable of being deceived. It happens when we stop trusting in the goodness of God and trusting in the goodness of his word, that it has something to say and it has meaning and it holds true as it always holds true. It is timeless and we don't doubt it. When we begin to doubt it, we begin to doubt the goodness of God, doubt the goodness of his word. This is when we begin to become easily deceived. When we stop believing that his way is best because it's his way simply because it's his way and we trust him as a good father. And we start then to believe the devil's lies instead of believing firmly in the truth of God. And it is sin to be deceived. It is sin to be deceived when we have been presented with the truth because you are calling God a liar. You're calling God a liar when you choose to trust in a lie that clearly goes against God's commands. When we say, okay, here's what the word of God says, but I don't like that. That's not what it means. I don't want to believe that we're beginning to call God a liar. Your truth isn't the whole truth. It's not good enough. This is a dangerous road. And I, and I said this from a, a place of, of, of great pain in my heart last week because I've seen people who begin to just, I don't like this, I don't like this, and then suddenly now they don't even have a relationship with God in any sense. They don't know him at all. They have no community. They're not a part of the church. They're not a part of a community. They have completely rejected all of his truths. It's not that big of a leap. Either he's truthful in all of his word or he's a liar. It's not for us to pick and choose which sections we like or don't like. So we need to trust in his, his commands because we are, when we allow ourselves to be deceived, we are calling God a liar and we are exchanging God's truth for a lie. And this then leads to actions of disobedience. It leads to, because how are we going to respond? What are we living by? Well, we're not living by the truth anymore. We're living by the lie. That has now become our truth. Uh, and Romans 1 talks, uh, uses the same analogy for, uh, in a very practical way, if you want to write that for your notes. 
But this leads to actions of disobedience, the partaking of forbidden fruit, if you will. So that's kind of what we really focused on last week. So we'll take a breath there. We'll look at uh, Adam now and his sin. What about Adam? Well, again, I, we don't see any evidence in Scripture here that he's truly deceived. First Timothy tells us that he's not deceived. And we know that he's been given the command directly, right? So he's, there's no, God didn't miscommunicate with him. You know, he didn't get it through someone else. He got it directly from the source. And I would say, when we think about that, it's so much worse, isn't it? It's so much worse. He knows what God said. He knows what God said. And he never stopped doubting it. He, hasn't, he wasn't deceived. He wasn't believing the lies of the devil, even though he's standing right there listening. And yet, still, he chooses to rebel. He chooses to seek his own good. Why did he take the fruit knowing that it was sinful, knowing that it was against what God had said? It's hard to say. There's several theories. Uh, maybe he saw that Eve had already done it, and he was like, well, I don't want to be, I don't want to be without her. If she's going to die for eating the fruit, then you know, I'd rather be with her in it. I, that's the, maybe the romantic, uh, the most romantic understanding of it. Maybe he just wasn't really paying attention. I don't know. Um, we also know that we look later in chapter 3, and when we, get, when we get to the curses, that a part of Adam's sin is that he's listening to his wife. So don't listen to your wife. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it does say that, guys. It does say that. We'll talk about that more next week. But that's not what it's saying, obviously. But it is saying that he was listening, and he was allowing her to fall into sin, and allowing her to, to basically hear this twisting, allowing her to be deceived and not doing anything. He's just standing there watching the whole thing unfold. Believing, allowing her to believe this lie. And then choosing to step into it himself with his eyes open. To step into it and to take this fruit as, as if it had something good to offer, as if it had something worth taking. Instead of accepting the goodness of God, the blessing that God had provided for them, remember where they're standing. They're in the midst of a beautiful creation, a garden with endless amounts of good things to eat. They weren't starving. It wasn't like they were in a desert and this is the only fruit as Jesus faced when he was tempted with that same temptation to take stones and turn it to bread. They have other options. They didn't need anything. And this makes Adam's sin really twofold. We're going to focus on just one of them today, so everybody can take a breath uh, when I explain what the two are. The first is this idea that it is an act of conscious rebellion against God, an act of conscious rebellion. He sinned with his eyes open. This makes his sin greater, and I would say it's, it's definitely one of the key aspects of his sin. But the second is a failure to carry out his divinely ordained responsibility to guard and to keep the garden and the woman that God had created, including upholding the morality that God had given him this task, and he rejects it. He, choose to be, he chooses instead to be passive rather than active. While, his, while this woman that God had given him is deceived in front of him. So we're going to focus on the first one. Everyone's like, which one is he going to focus on? We're going to focus on the first one. Let's consider Adam's sin committed 
with his eyes open. And I would say this is a conscious rebellion. Conscious rebellion, or you could say a rebellion against his conscience. It says in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. So what happened here? What happened? They didn't know they were naked? I mean, it's not that they like, were maybe unaware, and some say they were maybe clothed in light, and I don't know. We, we don't have to unpack all of that. But I would say something happened, something changed. They became aware of something. And what is this? Well, see, when their eyes were opened for the first time, they had what we would call today a conscience, a sense of something, a sense of what I've just done is wrong. I think most of us, hopefully, have felt that at one point. I don't think any of us are perfect here. Uh, and you do something, you think, oof, that wasn't right. And you feel this weight, and you feel this sense of guilt. That's your conscience. They didn't have one before. They didn't need one before. They were living in righteousness, along in perfect communion with God. They didn't need a conscience. But now they have one. Now they have one. Now they've experienced sin. They now could sense what they had done was wrong. And so here we have the origin of conscience. We see this sense of the weight and of a heavy conscience when they hide from God. Now, you don't need to be a Christian to have a conscience, right? This is something that through Adam and Eve now is in all of humanity. Romans 2 verse 14 says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, right? They're guided by something, a conscience, even though they do not have the law. <coughs> Sorry. So all of humanity have their eyes open, right? An awareness. All have been given some sense of morality. Therefore, we are without excuse before God. We're aware that it's wrong, in a, at least at some level, Certainly the first time you do it, <laughs> we're aware at some level that it's wrong to steal, to lie, to murder. The law of God, when I say the law, I'm mean talking about the law of Moses given through the Ten Commandments and uh, all through uh, Moses' writing. It says that the law, I would say that the law sharpens this. It sharpens this idea of our conscience. It makes it a little bit easier to depict and not just this sense of, ooh, that didn't feel right, but ah, this is what sin is. This is what goes against God's law. This is what goes against his commands and what makes it sinful. And this is sharpened by uh, by the law, which creates the sense of a mirror that we can actually look and see our true sinful nature. And how we respond to this, how we respond to our eyes being opened to our conscious, our conscience, <laughs> determines our eternity. We're either going to repent, ignore it, or suppress it, or try to fix it. We're going to repent, ignore it, or try to fix it. The obvious answer, repent. That's the good one. So, We'll just end there. No, repent is obviously the right choice, which is to be made righteous again through faith in Jesus Christ, to come before him and to see, I, I see where I'm a sinner. I see that I can't do it on my own. I see that I need someone to pay for this penalty of sin in my life. And we look to Christ as our savior. It is only through faith in Jesus that our sins are washed away, right? 
And then there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're no longer under condemnation because we're set free. And so when we fall into it, we can immediately repent, right? Because we still have a conscience. We still have an awareness of our sin. We still mess up. We still fall short of the glory of God, but we bring it to the cross every time. This is the right answer through repentance. And then we receive this forgiveness of our sins and we can live in freedom Those whom Christ has set free are free indeed. We're free in Christ. This only comes through repentance, right? That's the right response. That's the right response. Not everybody goes that direction. Second one is to ignore it, or I would even add maybe to suppress it. Because we can ask, well, how do people, if if this is true, then how would people then continue to go on sinning again and again? How could they live with this? If the weight is just building up, how could they keep on doing it if they have this sense and awareness of their sin? Well, we can ignore it. We can reject our conscience long enough. And if if we do it long enough, the Bible calls this a seared conscience, a seared conscience or an evil conscience. When one is no longer aware of the shame of their sin anymore, they've pressed it down long enough that they don't feel it. There's a point when a person has so completely exchanged the truth of God for the lie and and acted on it and lived in it long enough that they're unable to see the truth anymore. They're unable to to even understand the truth anymore and they're unable to, to sense their sinfulness. And we do, there's all kinds of ways that people do this, all kinds of ways that we tend to maybe, you know, convince ourselves, oh, it's not really that bad, or, oh, you know, I'll fix this later, or, oh, you know, well, everyone, everyone else is doing it, or so-and-so is doing it, and they seem to be all together. Their Instagram has such great photos of how much they read their Bible, so if they can do it, then it must not be that bad, right? And we can complete, just continue to press these things down in our hearts, until we don't feel it. And obviously this is especially true of those who don't have Christ, that they can suppress this conscience. But as Christians, if we have a regenerate heart, the Holy Spirit is always going to continue to press on you, whether you like it or not. It's gonna continue to press on you and it's gonna press on you the nature of evil and the sin in your life. That said, you can still work really hard to quiet that voice, to quiet the voice of the Holy Spirit by ignoring it and ignoring it and suppressing it and acting like it's not there or that it's not true or convincing yourself of whatever you need to convince yourself to allow yourself to continue to live in that sin so much that you don't really notice it anymore. You don't even notice. And if you've ever had a moment where God just like breaks you and is like, opens your heart up and shows you a sin, it's probably one, and you're like, wow, how have I been living like this? It's probably one that you've been suppressing maybe for a time. We can quiet it. And I would say just because it doesn't feel bad anymore doesn't mean it isn't wickedness. This is why we have the word of God to rely on. Oh, I'm so thankful that we don't just have to rely on ourselves or how we feel or what we think or what we, what we would like to accept. We have the word of God because we can't trust ourselves. We're really good at deceiving ourselves. I talked about that also last week that Eve, a part of Eve's deception is that she deceived herself. She started kind of changing the word of God on her own. We can deceive ourselves. We can repress our consciences. We can quiet the Holy Spirit and fill our, our lives with other things that are loud enough that drowns it out so that we don't feel it. We don't feel bad anymore when we live in that sin. I'm thankful we have the word of God to go to 
so we can look and see that mirror that shows us the things that we need to work on and repent of. And I would say when we find ourselves in that situation, repent. It's always the time to repent, to repent quickly. Don't let it get to the point where your conscience has been seared. But even if it has, it's not too late to come before Christ and to repent. We don't want the Holy Spirit to be quieted, to be drowned out by everything else. Let's bring it quickly to him to repent. So we can ignore it, we can repress this, we can repress our conscience, we can repress even quieting the Holy Spirit in our hearts if we work at it. But another thing that we do when in response to our conscience or what is often done is to try to just fix it. Just fix it yourself. Do it yourself. What do they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So I don't know, I wouldn't recommend trying that one. Fig leaves is an interesting choice, itchy, sticky leaves, not a very comfortable one, but it's a really great image for our attempts at religion in order to make ourselves right before God. All of our attempts to make ourselves righteous in his eyes, to hide our sin, to cover up the things that we've done wrong by doing things that are good. As soon as we are in the presence of God, this fades away quick. We are painfully aware of our sin. No matter what we've done to try to cover it up for ourselves, it doesn't matter how many fig leaves you sew together or how well you build your little loincloth, it's not going to be enough. Religion, though, can have all the appearances of righteousness, but it's empty. It's empty. It's the outside, but not the in. You know, it covers up. It's a loincloth, some fig leaves, but it doesn't deal with the issue of the heart. Matthew 23, 25 through 26, Jesus calling out the Pharisees as he does. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. On the outside, they appeared holy and righteous, but inside they were filthy. True righteousness begins with the inside through a changed heart. We promise that we will be given, our hearts of stone will be taken and hearts of flesh be put in their place. We need a changed heart. The true Christian isn't perfect. Amen? The true Christian isn't perfect. Thankful for that. We're not called to be perfect in that sense. We know that we're going to fall short, but we are being perfected. We are being perfected. When we have been given a new heart, we are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, daily being made more and more into the image of Christ. And so to that, I would say, this will be seen. This is the fruit of a a Christian life. It will be seen in how you live your life. It begins small on the inside. I've seen this. It's an amazing thing to see when you see that somebody has a changed heart and some of their actions, some of their speech, some of their, their kind of habits are not quite caught up yet, but you know that their heart is to serve Christ. And as they're changed and molded, it begins to 
grow into all areas of their life. It starts small inside, but it grows and grows, and the true Christian will have continual growth in their life. They will, you will see continual growth, like a tree planted by a stream, continuing to grow through all seasons of the year. This is the sign of somebody who has had their heart changed. Even though they still mess up, even though they still fall short, they know what to do. They repent because they know where their true life comes from. They know where the stream is that gives them life. All counterfeit Christianity, all self-righteousness might fool others for a while, and I would say there are definitely churches that have people in them that think they know Christ, but they fooled themselves and they fool others. But its true nature is always revealed. Its true nature is always revealed. We can imagine that Adam and Eve, they're, they're feeling some relief maybe, right? When they put those fig leaves on, right? God's not there yet, right? So they're like, ooh, I don't like this feeling. Ooh, this, this new sense of, of, of guilt and, and, and having never experienced that before, I can't, I mean, you know, that's, it was pretty intense, right? They're like, we've got to do something. We've got to, we've got to fix this. Let's cover ourselves up with fig leaves. Now, there's all, obviously, it's not just complete, completely uh, arbitrary. There's uh, some kind of aspects of why they wanted to cover up their nudity. I'm not going to unpack all that. But the, the, the main thing that they're trying to cover up is their, is their sin. They're trying to cover up their sin. But that faded pretty quickly in the presence of a holy God. They are acutely aware just how inadequate this covering is when they hear God approaching. Verse eight says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. I just wanna pause just for a moment and just consider what was lost here. Wow, that it was just, it was a normal thing. It was a normal day for God to meet up with them and take a walk in the cool of the afternoon. How amazing that's what they were experiencing. And I'll just be honest here, I, I would say I see this as Jesus. I see this as Jesus, that they were walking and spending time with Jesus in the garden. I believe that because, one, we know that Jesus was there before creation, so we know he's there. You know, he didn't come later. He's always been there. He always is, always will be. We also know that uh, Jesus himself and John says that no one has seen the face of God no one has seen this face of God that's referring to the Father. And so I think it's reasonable to conclude that Adam and Eve walked and talked with Jesus, had communion with him. And it's amazing because this is exactly what is redeemed in the New Testament for us today after this redemption by blood, by the blood shed by Jesus, we now can have communion with him again. And we look ahead to that full restoration when we will be in a new heaven, a new earth, but just a cool thing, cool image, and, a, and I would say a troubling thing to consider what was lost. And so when they hear God, they hide from his presence. Sin produces shame and guilt, resulting in a desire to hide ourselves, to run from him, to not show him our true nature. No loincloth can really shield us from the conviction experienced in the presence of a holy God. And loincloth, religion, a bunch of good acts that you've done in your life. Nothing is going to shield you from that experience. This is why the world is so strongly, so strongly wants to reject God because when we 
talk about God and when we look at God, when I say look at God, I'm talking about looking at his word, looking at scripture where we see who he is expressed through his words, the world hates it because they are confronted with the reality of their sinful nature and that makes people uncomfortable and it makes them want to hide, it makes them want to run away, it makes them hate that feeling. As Christians today, we can still be tempted to try and hide, to try and run when we are in our sin. But he is a loving father. Know him. Know who he really is. I'm a father myself, and I can tell you, if my children, it doesn't matter what they do, and, you know, they're three, five, well, the baby doesn't do much, but uh, three and five is an age where they, you know, they tend to go crazy sometimes, but it doesn't matter what they've done. If they run to me and they, they, they want to give me a hug and they, they want to say, Pop, I'm sorry, Man, they're always going to get love in reply. They're always going to get love. And I, who am evil, if I know that much, how much more our Heavenly Father? How much more is He going to always be there with open arms ready to receive us? How foolish it is that we try to run and hide. I think of Peter, who denies Jesus three times. Not once, not twice, three times. I mean, come on, dude. Get with the, I mean, what's going on? You walked with him, why? How, how could you do it three times? Get out of the situation if you can't stop yourself. It's easy to get frustrated with him. How can you do this? And he was frustrated with himself. And yet, when he sees Jesus on the shore, the end of the book of John, and he realizes who it is, he, says, he hasn't talked with Jesus yet since he denied him three times. He doesn't say, as some of us might be like, can we just take the boat to the other side? I don't don't want to talk to that guy. He's going to make me uncomfortable. No, he he, he takes off his clothes, jumps in the water, swims, and throws himself at the feet of Jesus. This is the right response. It's always better to run towards Jesus than to foolishly try to hide, isn't it? He knows where you are anyway. He knows what you're doing anyway. He knows what you think. He knows those sins that you struggle with in your mind. He knows the things that you look at on the internet. He knows what you're doing. Why are you trying to hide it from him? And something I say to people when I I do uh, meetings, some of you have heard this before, is to pray honestly. Pray honestly. Sometimes when we pray, we, we want to bring like our best face to God as if he doesn't really know what we just did like, you know, 10 minutes ago or what we were just looking at earlier that day or what we were thinking earlier, maybe even moments earlier or even as we started praying. He knows. So don't try to lie. Don't try to bring, don't try to like put a, a loincloth between you and God when you're praying. Just pray to him. Throw yourself at his feet. He knows anyway. I mean, right, you, you do understand that he knows, right? Like, you can lie in your prayers, but he knows what's going on. Like, you're not fooling him. So pray honestly. God, I sinned here. I messed up here. I did this, and I'm sorry. I don't want to live that way. I want to be changed by you. Pray honestly. Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves, to cover their sin, to hide from the very presence of God. And as God approaches, he calls to them, and they're struck with fear, because their eyes are open. They experience the knowledge of God that he knows. They know that loincloth ain't doing nothing. He knows what they've done. He says, who told you you were naked? He knows. He knows what's going on. God doesn't doesn't ask questions because he's looking for information. He knows what's going on. It's always for our benefit, and it's usually for opportunity 
for confession. Here we see God's grace. This isn't God coming down with condemnation. It's God offering a hand of grace. God could have immediately responded with judgment. He could have not said anything to them at all. He had told them what was going to happen. He could have just kicked them out of the garden and not told them anything. Would God have been unjust to do that? No. He wouldn't have been. He had every right to do that. But it was his mercy that he comes to them and gives them a chance to respond. At this point, I wonder what our reality would be if Adam and Eve had just immediately ran to God instead of trying to hide, confessed their sin of disobedience, and asked for his forgiveness. But their response demonstrates just how much sin changes us, how much it changes humanity. It changes how they see God. They're now fearful of him. It changes how they see themselves. They're ashamed. It changes how they see each other which we see in how they quickly turn to blaming one another instead of acknowledging their sin. Now, we do see that Adam, he does acknowledge. He acknowledges his shame. He acknowledges his nakedness. He acknowledges his fear of God. But this is not confession. This is not confession of his fault, but a response to the consequence. He's responding to the consequence. He's responding to how it made him feel. He's not confessing sin. And I would say we need to be careful of this. How often do we respond to the consequence of our sin rather than confessing our faults? You sin, whatever it might be. You lied. I think a lot more people lie than tend to admit it. You know, when you do those little white lies, like, hey, I'll be there in five minutes. And you're like, yeah, I won't be there in five minutes. That's a lie. That's a lie. We're like, oh, is it a lie? I don't know. It's not the truth, is it? Man, come on. It's a lie. We lie. Maybe it's a lie. Maybe it's, maybe, it's, uh, maybe it's something you looked at on the internet. Maybe it's something that, or maybe it's a greater sin. I don't know. You know your sins. You, 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 you sinned. You feel, guilt, you feel guilty about it. You feel shame about it. And so you go to God and you're like, oh, God, I'm so, so sorry. I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. I'm so sorry. I don't, oh, I'm so sorry. And then as soon as that guilt starts to fade away, you're right back to where you started. You didn't change. You didn't change your heart. You didn't want to stop it. You just wanted the feeling to go away. Do you truly want to change? This is what repentance is. I want to change. I don't want to do that. I don't want to want to do that anymore. Or are you marred by the guilt of your disobedience to God or rather just uncomfortable? This feels icky. I don't like it. Uncomfortable with the result of your sin, with your shame. You don't like the feeling of being uncomfortable. And so you just want that to go away. But as soon as it does, I mean, it's, what, what's going to stop you from sinning again? True confession is to say, as David said, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. He addresses God, and he knows that it is against him that he has sinned, and he is quick to say, I sinned. I sinned against you. Don't make excuses. Don't blame others. Don't blame your wife, as Adam does. All right, I heard that. Don't blame your family. Don't blame, don't blame your upbringing, your, the society, your friends, your boss, your professors. Oh, I, I would be different if I was raised. I would, oh, I struggle with this because of, how I, of this situation I faced. Man, own your sin. 
Stand before God, a holy God, knowing that he sees everything about you. He sees everything about you. He knows what you've done. He knows everything that you've done wrong. He also knows everything you're going to do wrong in the future. He knows your sins, past, present, and future. And rather than hiding by not praying or rejecting it or suppressing it or running away or, or trying to come to God with like a kind of prayer uh, but trying to leave out the details as if he didn't know, rather than hiding, find strength that not only does he already know, does he already see what you've done, but he loves you. But he loves you and his arms are still open. In closing, I want to look back at a few words that we saw in the text. I think can seem insignificant, but I find them very powerful. And I would say they make all the difference in how we understand who God is and why we come to him in these situations when we're facing sin. Those three words are, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? God calls out, where are you? Does God not know where they are? Is he like, we said we'd meet at 3, and it's like 3.30. What's going on? Where are you? No, he knows where they are. He knows exactly where they are. He could have walked straight to them and confronted them with their sin and condemned them for what they had done. But he calls out, where are you? He's seeking them out. He's seeking them like a father. They try to hide. What if God had said, if, I mean, if they, don't want to, if they don't want to be found, then I've got other things to do. Or, you know what? I'll just sit back. I'll wait. They'll come to me eventually. They know where I am. I'm so thankful that God is the one who does the seeking. God is the one who does the seeking, and God is seeking us today, even in our sin. Romans 3.11, no one understands no one seeks for God. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Though we have a conscience and an awareness of our sins and that we in some, at some level are sinners or in, in rebellion against God, we would have no idea. We wouldn't have the two cents of where to go. Human beings tend to think far too highly of themselves. They tend to think that those fig leaves are doing the trick. I'm basically a good person. I mean, I, basic, I pay my taxes. I don't speed. I mean, sometimes I have little things here and there, but for the most part, I'm a, I'm a good person. I've got a nice fig leaf going on here. I don't think I need anything. I'm good. We tend to think much too highly of ourselves. That's why we have the law to show us just how foolish we are, how silly they must have looked to God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine from his perspective, hiding from an omniscient God? He's like, oh, jeez. Oh, my goodness. What's going on here? Covering their sinfulness, their guilt, their shame with itchy fig leaves. I mean, I just feel like you can sense the sigh. If God is like a father, I get it. Oh, man. But his heart is broken for them. He doesn't just walk away. He doesn't just leave them. He seeks after them. 
Things have changed. Oops. Things have not changed much since then. It might, we might look at this story and think how silly they were. I mean, fig leaves, come on. But nothing we do is going to cover us. And everything we do to try to make ourselves right looks just as silly to God. Just as silly as sewed together fig leaves. And we look just as stupid when we try to run and hide from him. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and he came to save. And we are lost. Just as um, just through as through one man, sinful nature came into humanity, through eating of this one, the fruit of this one tree, we're saved through the sacrifice of the one man crucified on a cursed tree. We, he was cursed to take our curse. He is crushed that we may be redeemed. And Jesus calls to us. He seeks us. He calls us by name, the Bible tells us. He's not waiting. He's not just hoping that, you know, some way, somehow, you'll end up kind of wandering in the right path. He seeks after you. He is a good shepherd, and he knows his sheep, and his sheep know his voice. A verse that changed my life in many ways was John 6, 44. It says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This verse came to me at a transition point in my life, and I knew when I looked back at my life, I, I had no idea why I was serving, why I was wanting to serve God. I had no idea why I was seeking after him. But when I looked back, this verse really brought some clarity that it was God who had been seeking me the whole time. It was God who showed up where I was and pulled me out of something. I wasn't in church. I wasn't in a place where I was kind of looking for a connection with God. God found me. He sought after me. He came in my life like a whirlwind and grabbed my attention and drew me to himself. And I like that word draw because it's not maybe what we immediately might think. It's not, it's not like Jesus is like trying to persuade us. He's not trying to woo us into faith. It's the same word. That one of the only other times we see that word draw is at the, with a woman at the well when Jesus tells her to draw water out of the well. You see, Jesus, he comes down into the dark depths where we are. He grabs a hold of us and he pulls us back into the light. We are dead, and he brings us back to life. We are blind, and he opens our eyes. I say this because when we understand the reality of how we are sought after by Christ and how we are saved because of his works, not because of our own, we then respond to this truth. We learn to live in obedient surrender to the word of God, not in order to work hard to try to make ourselves good, but because we know that we have already been changed. The outside is being transformed to represent what has already been changed within. Adam and Eve demonstrated for us the wrong response to sin, the wrong way to respond to their conscience. Let us respond rightly 
today to a Savior who is seeking us and calling us. We love and obey Jesus Christ because he first loved us, because he first sought us. That's the good news of the gospel. Amen. I invite the band to come up as we close. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you, Father, that you are working in us. You are calling us to yourself and that you seek us. I pray that you would remind us in our own life when we look back, maybe at our own walk with you, of how you've done that, how it was you who was at work, how it was you who called us, how it was you who opened our eyes to the truth that we may respond with a complete trust in you and a devotion to serve you, to love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Say goodbye to those watching.